This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Welcome again to another day at GYC, uh, seminars at least. Um, it'll be an exciting day uh, today, and um, we've got outreach and a lot of things planned, but we have this one hour we can spend together talking about biblical interpretation, the power of God's Word. And today this section is going to be discussing the interpretation of Bible prophecy. Now this is something that is a very large subject, as you might, uh, you might imagine, uh, we could spend a whole six hours talking about prophecy and prophetic interpretation. I have one hour that I'm going to spend on it. So it will be, in some senses, I suppose, a, an overview. Um, as I have spent many years studying and teaching prophecy and uh, engaging in discussions with numerous individuals who have likewise studied prophecy, I've come to come to understand that there's a, there are a few principles that, if we understand them, could safeguard us from uh, misunderstandings and misinterpretations. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I believe that prophecy is very important to us as Adventists. I believe that we are a movement of Bible prophecy, both fingered in Bible prophecy, predicted in Bible prophecy, and also uh, incumbent upon us is the responsibility of teaching Bible prophecy. So we are a prophetic movement. And uh, so I believe it's very, very crucial to who we are and what we do. GYC um, is a part of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, the Great Second Advent movement, that is specifically named in the Bible as taking place before the end of time. And if we are going to be faithful to the work that God has called us to do, we must have an understanding of prophecies. And unfortunately... Uh, in many cases, I feel like our understanding of prophecy as a people has probably declined rather than grown. Um, there has been a, there has been a uh, sort of uh, maybe um, neglect of teaching it in a very cogent and, and thorough way. Um, I have in my library several textbooks from early Adventist education. I'm talking about near the turn of the century, the 20th century. Um, and these textbooks, it's quite interesting to me to look at them. These are in um, what we would call middle school, I guess, uh, upper grade school years, and they probably are more in-depth in the teaching of Bible prophecy than most of our high school or, or even some of our college classes are going to be teaching. Um, they're just very, very in-depth, and and this was what Adventism was. We were a prophetic movement, and we've largely lost that. And what I found is that many Adventists, they, they, they resonate with a prophetic movement, a message. So when someone comes along that is studying the prophecies and has, a, has something exciting they want to share and, and a, an interpretation of a passage that these Adventists never understood that makes sense, many of them gravitate towards those uh, expositors or teachers even though perhaps some of them are, some of their teachings are not orthodox or not in harmony with Adventist belief. So while I believe that we're a prophetic movement, I also have watched many, many Seventh-day Adventists 
probably very innocently get sucked up into prophetic interpretive schemes that have ended up leading them away from Adventism, away from the Seventh-day Adventist church. And I don't know if you know any people like that, but I know a number of people who used to be Seventh-day Adventists who no longer are Seventh-day Adventists, and I think I can trace their study um, of prophecy as as a primary source of their disillusionment with the church or their... Um, they're um, being carried away into a teaching that is not in harmony with the church. Today we do see within the Seventh Adventist Church, and I will say, particularly within the conservative groups in Adventism, we see a number of false teachers of Bible prophecy. I believe that um, they 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 have theories about the prophecies that the, that are not in harmony with the message that we have traditionally held, and they make themselves out to be, they make themselves out to be the most important message of the time, which then, since it's not being done by the church, leads people to support them and to leave the fellowship of the Seventh-day Adventist Church uh, instead. So we're going to cover some of the principles that I think can help safeguard us against these false teachers, false teachings, and, um, and help us to understand Bible prophecy correctly. These will be fairly fundamental, rudimentary principles. We're not going to be going in depth. However, I do hope to have some time for questions and answers. If you have uh, some questions about specific prophecy that we might be able to look at, uh, I don't have all the answers, but I can, I can try to help you understand something that may be of interest. So with that preamble, we're going to go ahead and get started with a word of prayer. I invite you to bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we just thank you that you've given us once again the gift of life. Thank you for a a new day at GYC, the blessings we've already received. Thank you for the opportunity once again to open your word and to study uh, prophecy, particularly this hour. We pray that you would help us to learn some of the basic principles. We may not understand all the prophecies when we leave here, but hopefully, hopefully at least, Lord, we can we can have a basis for studying them that will safeguard us against deceptions and errors. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so basically I've mentioned to you that Adventism is a prophetic movement. You remember that William Miller, the Baptist farmer who became a a rather hesitant preacher, was the one who began this movement of the Great Second Advent, at least here in America, Uh, They were all over the world. People simultaneously were discovering the same prophecies and interpreting them in a similar way as William Miller. Now, it's interesting, as we look at William Miller, we we notice that the fiercest critics of Miller, such as Campbell and Bush and Smith and others, if we read the articles and the papers of those days, by the way, the the, uh, the Daystar and other papers that were dedicated to, to, to spreading the Millerite message did not just print Miller and, and Fitch and Litch and the other expositors that agreed with each other. They also printed the critics, and they actually printed back-and-forth discussions. So, so Miller would write a letter to you know, Dr. Campbell or, or some other, um, of his, uh, other Bible scholar that disagreed with him, and um, that would be printed in the Day Star, and then the, uh, the response of the opponent would be printed as well. And this was an ongoing discussion. This was, this was not us and them and their fighting. They were trying to better understand, and they believed that by discussion they would 
sharpen their understanding of the prophecies. So they had these discussions. We can read those debates or discussions back and forth. And the fiercest critics of Miller, um, such as these individuals, uh, still agreed in general on the time portion of the prophecy. In fact, um, one of them said, um, I, I think it might have been Campbell, who was a professor at Yale, I believe. I believe he was the one who said, anyone who agrees with Miller, who disagrees with Miller on his time portion, um, disagrees with him on his strongest point. In other words, the time understanding, the 2300 days ending in 1843 or 1844, that was something they all agreed. Now, they had different ideas of what the sanctuary being cleansed meant, okay? Some of them believed that it was the sanctuary, literal sanctuary in Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt around that time. Some of them believed that at that time, the Turks would be driven out of the Middle East, and once again, Christian powers would be able to take over that part of the world, or, um, or, or, or perhaps the Jewish powers would be able to come back and, and reclaim the Holy Land. So there were different ideas of what the sanctuary uh, being cleansed meant, but these all agreed on the time prophecy. Something was going to happen in 1843 or 1844. We find very few uh, critics of that time prophecy. Now, why is that? There's a reason that they all agreed about 1844 or 1843 at the time. They were all historicists. So we're going to talk a little bit about historicism. Historicists or historicism, um, historicists believe in historicism, put it that way, right? Now, that does not mean, as some have assumed wrongly, that all Bible prophecies in the past, we have nothing to, nothing to be interested in today. Okay? Some people say, well, I won't believe in historicism because I believe that prophecies should still speak to us today. Well, I do too. So we're going to try to define what historicism is. We're going to look at the other major principles of prophetic interpretation as well. And we're going to try to understand in a very brief method how to decide which principle of interpretation we should be using. Okay? Uh, because this is very, very important. We're talking about a very, uh, a very uh, general basis of how we look at the prophecies and how we interpret them. First of all, I want to just share with you that around the same time as William Miller and, and his critics were writing about Bible prophecy, many, many, many other people were writing about Bible prophecy too. In fact, in about a 10-year period between 1830 and 1840, it's believed that there are more books or major papers written on the subject of Bible prophecy than had been written throughout the 1800 years earlier. Um, the Bible we talked about yesterday had been the most studied book throughout the Middle Ages. I mean, there weren't a lot of books. You know, this was, this was the most studied book. But there was not a real focus on Bible prophecy until after 1798, when the time of the end began. And according to Daniel chapter 12, the book of Daniel was unsealed, right? And this became able to be understood. The Holy Spirit began illuminating the minds of students who were studying the book of Daniel. And I just want to illustrate for you how this uh, worked. Each of these timelines represents the time, the lifespan of a, a, an individual. Okay, so this is beginning, the, the heavy line here is 1798, right? And um, so a bunch of these people were born sometime before 1798, a few of them born after 1798. Here you have this heavy line here is 1844. 1843 and 1844. Um, of course, they continued living after that. But what you may or may not be able to see from where you are, there are dots on these timelines. See these dots? These dots represent books or major papers written by these authors on the subject of Bible prophecy. And what you see is that um, uh, there were very few books written prior to, 18, uh, prior to 1798 on the subject of Bible prophecy. I mean, there's just, there's not anybody writing on it. 
And, and, and this is from um, Froome's uh, The Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, a very exhaustive study. And um, what we see is an explosion around the time of the 1830s and, uh, and up through around 1844 and a few years after, an explosion on the study of Bible prophecy. Now, this is not, this is not all of the expositors. They continue, and, um, and they continue still some more. And what you'll see is all of these individuals were working off of the platform of historicism, except for a few that are noted here. You might see a couple futurists here and a preterist. There's a few individuals here and there who were writing not from the Protestant historicist perspective, but from a preterist or, or futurist perspective. But basically, every single one of these individuals were writing from the idea of historicism. So what is historicism? Historicism holds that prophecy covers the entire period from the prophet until the second advent. Now, I'm not saying that the books of Daniel and Revelation combined would cover that period. What, what historicism says is each vision or each section, each, each, um, each uh, unit of Bible prophecy begins at the time of the prophet and ends at, uh, in the time of the end or at the end of time or at some future date, right? So this is to say, this is to say that in Daniel we have very neat divisions between the visions, right? What's the first vision or dream of Daniel? It's Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right? Daniel chapter 2. And this is what, prophes- uh, what historicism says. Daniel chapter 2 does not begin sometime in the future, right? Daniel chapter 2 began, in other words, if you were to, if you were to, to chart out the, the timeline that Daniel chapter 2 described, I guess I should go the other way for you all. If you're, Daniel 2 starts over here, and uh, this is where the beginning of this prophecy is, and this is where the end of the prophecy is, you would find that the beginning of the prophecy began during the time of the prophet, or right about then, and it would end at the time of the end, the very end of time, or you know, uh, in some future event that is uh, beyond the second coming. That's historicism. That is to say that what would we expect Daniel 7 to do? Daniel 7 is a, a new prophecy, right? Historicism says Daniel chapter 7, it doesn't pick up where Daniel chapter 2 leaves off. It goes over the same time period from the time of the prophet all the way down to the time of the end or sometime after that, right? Some future event that is beyond the time of the end or the second advent. And Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter... Well, 9 is a completion of Daniel 8, but um, Daniel 10 through 12. And then Revelation, historicism says, it does the same thing. The, the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, they begin with the time of the prophet and they continue down to the second advent or thereafter. So this is historicism. This is the way historicism assumes a prophecy will work, a vision will work. There's another major tenet of historicism, and that is the day-year principle. Now, we use two Bible verses often, Ezekiel 4, 6, Numbers 14, 34, as proof texts, I guess you might say, to show that the Bible sometimes uses a day for a year. But there are actually some 30 or 40 biblical arguments for the day-year principle. And in the uh, Biblical Research Institute's uh, um, studies on, on prophetic interpretation, uh, that we, you can get those books at the ABC. They actually have some papers and articles, books, or, yeah, booklets that are written that describe all of these different arguments. The Day Your Principle is a very strong biblical principle. And by the way, 
all expositors of Bible prophecy, I shouldn't say all, there's probably a few preterists that don't, but both, both futurists and historicists believe in the day-year principle when it comes to the messianic prophecies of Daniel chapter 9. You cannot come up with the 70-week prophecy that brings you down to the Messiah without believing the day-year principle, at least there. Okay? Um, futurists only use it there, whereas historicists say in symbolic, listen carefully, in symbolic Bible prophecies, a day is equal to a year. That's what, that's what historicists hold. A day is equal to a year. So a day in the prophecy is equal to um, a year in literal time. Um, did, I, did I cover the Antichrist? Yes. Uh, the, the Antichrist had its beginnings in Paul's day and destroyed at the second coming. The reason I throw this in is because this is a sticking issue in Bible prophecy. It was for the Reformers. The Reformers said, hey, we are understanding Bible prophecy well enough. It wasn't even unsealed yet, but they were understanding Daniel 7 well enough and 2 Thessalonians well enough and even the book of Revelation well enough to say, we think, we believe that the church of Rome is actually fingered in Bible prophecy as being a false system of religion, okay? The little horn of Daniel 7 or the, uh, the woman of Revelation chapter 17. And um, they believed that. The Reformers believed that. By the way, the Reformers were all historicists. Now, this became an issue because the church didn't really like being identified in prophecy, right? And so what you'll find is the other alternate interpretations of prophecy use instead of the principles of historicism that identify the Antichrist as being in existence now, so we should be able to figure out what it is, right? They use a different, they, they either place the Antichrist in the past or in the future. That's what we're going to see. But the future, uh, historicism says the Antichrist had its beginnings in Paul's day and will be destroyed the second coming. And uh, so we should be able to identify what it is now and we, it exists at this moment. So if I could graphically illustrate historicism, we all learn a little differently, don't we? So this is for those of you who are very visual and uh, graphic learners. If I, could, if I could illustrate it, this yellow line represents the, uh, the, the, the timeline of the prophecy, okay? And so the events described in the prophecy would begin with the time of the prophet, and it would continue all the way down until the second coming, at least some, some beyond the second coming. And historicism says that if that's the case, we know the prophet's already in the past, the second coming in the future, we're somewhere on that, in that continuum, right? We should be able to find where we are. And this is one of the beauties of the way God gave the prophecies. Um, I'm already revealing, of course, my bias. I am a historicist, Adventist historicist, so I'm just going to say it. I believe in historicism. But one of the beauties of historicism is that we can trace back those earlier fulfillments and we can match what the prophecy said with what history tells us happened, right? And when we come all the way down to where we are, we can recognize, hey, there are still some things yet to be fulfilled. Not all of historicism. Historicism doesn't place all prophecy in the past. No, not at all. What it says is we have a track record of prophetic fulfillment. So we can know already that the principles of interpretation we're using are accurate. And that, that gives us a great confidence in expecting what will happen in the future fulfillments, those yet unfulfilled prophecies, because we know how the prophecy has been fulfilled so far. This is a huge benefit of historicism. We have a track record. We're not trying to just come up with some new paradigm altogether. I, the third um, characteristic there of the Antichrist 
It began in the days of Paul. It ends at the second coming, destroyed, 2 Thessalonians says, at the brightness of his coming. So therefore, we should be able to identify it now, right? And um, that's a graphical illustration of how historicism looks at prophecy from a large overview. Futurism, however, has a different view of prophecy, how prophecy works. Prophecy does not cover the entire period until the second coming. There's a gap. Futurism and dispensationalism go hand in hand. And that is to say that futurism works under the, under the premise that there are different eras or ages or dispensations. And we are now in the age of the church. And during the age of the church, there's really not any prophecy that we have to worry about. There's this gap during the church age. And that, gap, that church age is going to be, come to an end, according to futurism, when the rapture takes place and the church is no longer on earth. Then all the bad things in the prophecy start to happen again. The Antichrist comes and all the rest. There's persecution, tribulation, and all those things that take place. But we don't have to really worry about it now because we're living in the church age. So you get the idea, right? That's futurism. Futurism says there's this gap. Most of the prophecy is still to be fulfilled in the future just before the second advent. Now that gap is particularly pronounced in the 70-week prophecy where they say, you know, the 69 weeks already took place because they have to. Jesus came. He came in on time in 27 AD and was baptized um, and was crucified and so forth. But they, they say there's this gap that the 70th week hasn't happened yet. They would also say that most of the other prophecies can be taken, lifted entirely, and taken into the future. Um, you have a great disadvantage with futurism because futurism does not have that track record of fulfillment. In other words, if I'm a futurist expositor, I can take the whole of the seven trumpets, the whole of the seven seals, the whole of the seven churches if I wanted to, or, or maybe some other passage in Daniel chapter 12 or another passage. I can take the whole prophecy, the whole vision, and I can put it off into the future, right? And I can start preaching and teaching about what this means is going to happen in the future. And guess what? As long as I'm internally consistent with how I interpret, you can't really say I'm wrong because it hasn't happened yet, right? But of course, I can't really prove I'm right either because I have no track record of prophetic fulfillment. The prophecy hasn't even started being fulfilled yet. It's very easy. So what happens is, you know, there's some basic principles in dispensationalism and futurism that the futurist ex expositors agree on. But mostly, you'll find that if you turn on your television, you watch a prophetic a sermon, someone preaching about prophecy, they're probably going to be a futurist and they're probably going to have a different opinion than the next channel that's also pro teaching about prophecy. There's as many interpretations of futurism as there are preachers of futurism because the sky's the limit. You, you, can, you can make up whatever principles of interpretation you want to if none of the prophecy has already been fulfilled and it's all still in the future. You understand that? So, so this is one of the reasons there's such variety in the, in the field of futurism. It does away with the day-year principle. Um, so in the futurism, a day in Bible prophecy is a literal day. 1,260 days is literally three and a half years. And so that's where they get, for example, the, uh, the whole tribulation period and so forth. Um, they, they somehow match the 1260 with the half a week in, uh, in this, the last, 70, uh, last of the 70 weeks. And they believe that after the rapture, there's going to be this tribulation where there's those who um, 
miss the rapture, have a second chance to be able to be converted, but it'll be under great difficulty, under great dis, dis, uh, uh, persecution and so forth from the Antichrist. So the Antichrist appears in the future just before the second coming. We don't have to worry about him now. He's not around now. We can't identify him now. It's a, it's a, it's a very uh, convenient prophecy that does away with the identification of the Antichrist. So here's futurism in a graphic way. There's, there may have been some you know, prophecies that, had, that were fulfilled back near the time of the prophet, but there's this gap. We're living in that gap, the church age, and the prophecy uh, would predict the Antichrist to be sometime in the future. The last of the, of the schools of prophetic interpretation we're going to look at is preterism. And preterism says that prophecy was fulfilled soon after the prophet gave them or shortly after the first advent. So here you have Daniel being fulfilled soon after the book of Daniel is written. Revelation, soon after the book of Revelation was written. So soon after Jesus came, those prophecies already met their fulfillment and uh, we don't have to worry about them now. It's already passed. The Antichrist, they say, is Antiochus Epiphanes, the uh, Syrian king um, who under the... Uh, the Greek Empire was persecuting of the Jews. I mean, the abomination of desolation, they hold, was the fact that Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed pigs on the altar in Jerusalem. No doubt an abomination. But this is the uh, already past. That's what Daniel 7, the little horn, was talking about. And um, it's, it's already in the past. So preterists tend not to be uh, too worried about Bible prophecy at all. Uh, in fact, by a preterist you will find generally to be among the, the uh, well, the more established mainline denominations such as Presbyterians or Episcopalians or some of the um, churches that have been around for a long time. Um, they, they tend to have more of a liberal view of Scripture and they tend to be preterist in their understanding of Bible prophecy. And basically they're not too worried about it because it's already in the past. They don't have too much to worry about it. This is Bible prophecy. The prophet spoke. That was good until soon after his lifetime. The latest would reach down till you know, the time of the disciples, soon after the time of Christ. And uh, we're living well beyond that. And so we don't have much to say uh, about prophecy. I remember one professor from uh, Presbyterian Seminary in, in Denver. I heard her speaking on, on prophecy. And, um, and, and she, she, just, she just sort of ridiculed the idea that the Bible has anything to say about how the world's going to end, you know? I mean, it's just, uh, by the time you have that view of the Bible and of prophecy, you don't really spend much time talking about it at all. It's just something that was local. It was a local message, literal message for that time, and that's the end of the story. So this is preterism. Antichrist is in the past. So of these four or three uh, uh, systems of prophetic interpretation... How do we know which one is correct? How do we know which one we should hold to and uh, use to interpret Bible prophecy? Well, I'm going to suggest that Daniel 2 is the first place we should start. I believe that Daniel is uh, really a primer for us to teach us how to understand prophetic interpretation. In other words, there was no uh, end-time prophetic book until Daniel until Nebuchadnezzar had his vision, and this dream was given to both Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and also to Daniel. And the, Daniel teaches us how to interpret it. And it's very easy because we have both the dream and the interpretation. In other words, we don't really have to interpret Daniel 2 at all, do we? It's not. I mean, it's, it, it, we, it, we're told what it means. We don't, there's no interpretation needed. In fact, you'll find, this is interesting, 
you'll find that even though some other schools of prophetic thought interpret other chapters vastly different, or other visions vastly different than Daniel 2, you very rarely find anybody reinterpreting Daniel 2 and saying it means something new. <laughs> Why? Well, because the Bible says what it means. You see, you would think that we would see that vision and interpretation. We'd say, aha, let's learn how it works and use those same understandings, those same principles in the future. So how does it work? Um, in later prophecies, it's assumed that we remember the principles and the symbols taught. So basically, let's just do an overview. I, I assume that you all are familiar with the vision of Daniel 2, the head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, the legs of iron, and the feet of iron and clay. And this is a, this is a, a very graphic image that God used to describe the future to Nebuchadnezzar. And um, of course, what was probably just as uh, alarming to Nebuchadnezzar as the vision was, uh, this image was inspiring, was the fact that that stone came and, uh, and destroyed the image, this idol that must have been an amazing God-looking uh, image to Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, after that, Nebuchadnezzar saw that the stone which came, which was formed without hands and destroyed the image and it just blew away, disappeared. Um, that stone became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And so this was the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. What we learned from Daniel chapter 2 is that Bible prophecy is often given in symbols. How? In symbols. That's a very important thing for us to learn. Um, we also remember that the explanation of the symbols is found in the Bible itself. And if we, if we look in Daniel chapter 2, we see Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar, I can't tell you this dream, I can't tell you what it means, but there's a God in heaven who can, right? And he tells him, he describes to Nebuchadnezzar what he dreamed as we just went over. And then he says, you, O king, are the head of gold. You are the head of gold. Your kingdom, your empire, after you, he said, another will arise inferior to you. And a third kingdom of bronze shall rule over the earth. So these, these metals represented what? Kingdoms, right? That's, that's very clear. This explanation of the symbols is found in the Bible itself. And so this is, this is very important for us to realize. And by the way, the, uh, the prophecy doesn't end until we get to the end of time, right? The stone, which is cut out without hands, Daniel explained, is the great God of heaven shall come and set up his kingdom, which shall never pass away, right? That's what I call the second coming or the end of time. That sort of summarizes, doesn't it? I think it probably summarizes everything from 1844 until after the millennium in that one little stone that comes and destroys the image and, uh, and, and fills the whole earth. Uh, that God of heaven will, will uh, come and set up his own kingdom, which shall never pass away. It's covering a very broad scope of time. Now, Daniel chapter 7, if we go on to the next vision of Daniel, we find that it uses different symbols. Uh, but uh, once again, many of the interpretations are found in the same chapter, not all of them. Uh, but but um, the vision is at least explained in the same chapter. Um, not all the symbols are necessarily described. But it also follows a historicist stream of prophetic time. In other words, from Daniel 2, if we were just to compare again those, those three schools of thought, which one would we see from God's explanation of Daniel 2? Which would Daniel 2 be fitting? Da uh, historicism, preterism, or futurism? 
It's historicism, isn't it? It began at the time of the prophet, and it would end at the very end of time as God establishes his, his eternal kingdom. And um, so it doesn't fit either of those other schools of thought, interpretive schools. Um, Daniel 7 does the same thing, but it teaches a new principle, what I'm going to call the repeat and enlarge principle. Some people say, wait a minute. Why in the world would God waste his breath, waste ink on paper, to go over the same time prophecy all over again? I mean, what, we already know there's Daniel, da, Daniel chapter 2, there's Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Why do we need another vision, Daniel chapter 7, with Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome? Obviously, God must have meant something else. Listen, God is trying to do something very special here. He's trying to show us a, a more information about a specific portion of time, and that's the repeat and enlarge principle. Let's look at Daniel chapter 7 real quickly and notice how these, uh, how these prophecies work. Uh, Babylon in Daniel chapter 7 is represented by a lion, and it's not only in Daniel chapter 7. Elsewhere in Scripture we find Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 7, the lion has come up from his thicket, the destroyer of nations is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitant. Uh, uh, wings represent speed. So this is a lion with wings. And the Bible tells us that wings are a symbol of speed. Deuteronomy 28, verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies. A nation whose language you will not understand. So as swift as an, an eagle flies, this is talking about how rapid Babylon would come a, across uh, and take over the destruction of, of well, of, of the Holy Land, but not only that of, of that part of the, the known world. Not only was, uh, was the Bible referring to <clears throat> wings and, and, and a lion itself in talking about Babylon, but the symbol or the, the, uh, the animal representing Babylon was a lion in ancient times. Here we find from the Ishtar Gate, constructed by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar uh, around 575 B.C., and it was the eighth gate of the city of Babylon and the main entrance into the city. And here you see, as was seen in many parts around the city of Babylon, a lion representing the city. Um, and this kingdom would last from 605 to 539 B.C. And so here you find that just like, uh, just like uh, Babylon was represented by a head of gold in Daniel chapter 2, it's represented by a lion in Daniel chapter 7. The next image, uh, the next um, part of the image, the chest and arms of silver, represented Medo-Persia, and a bear in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, uh, the belly and thighs of, grass, of, of, of brass, representing Greece, were represented by a leopard with four heads and four wings in Daniel chapter 7. In uh, the next empire, Rome, the legs of iron in Daniel chapter 2 are represented by a great and dreadful beast. Um, basically, there was nothing in the Babylonian zoo that Daniel could think of that was ferocious enough to describe it, uh, mashed it. It must have been some sort of a T-Rex or something. And he just, there's a great and dreadful beast is what he described it as. And that's the symbol in Daniel chapter 7. And then you have the ten toes or the, the divided kingdom, the feet part of iron and part of clay, and the ten kings of Daniel chapter 7. Now, again, why do we need, why do we need another Daniel chapter 2, basically, just with new images, new symbols? Well, the, the reason is very simple. God is going to give us more information, but he's going to give us more information, particularly about the end of time. This is the repeat and enlarge principle. Bible prophecies often cover the same time period as a preceding prophecy using different symbols. That's what we just noticed, right? 
but they give more focus and information toward the end of time. You see, Daniel chapter 7 does not end with talking about the ten horns, does it? What, what happens next? What happens next is we have details that aren't in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, there's no mention really of the Antichrist. There's no mention specifically of the judgment. But in Daniel chapter 7, after those ten horns representing also the divided uh, iron and clay of the feet of the, of the image of Daniel 2, after that you have a little horn that comes up. And Daniel chapter 7 gives ten characteristics of that little horn that help us to identify this little horn that would come up. After the time of of Rome, after Rome fell, but before the, the time of judgment. There'd be this space that would be occupied by the little horn. That's something very, very important. By the way, the judgment itself is not described in Daniel chapter 2. It's only maybe covered, loosely covered, in the stone cut out without hands that destroys the image. But nothing specifically about a, a judgment, much less a pre-advent judgment, is described in Daniel chapter 2. But Daniel chapter 7, you have the, the Son of Man coming to the ancient of days in the heavenly sanctuary, coming on the clouds, and the books are open. Judgment begins before the second coming, before the, before the kingdom is taken away from the little horn and given to the saints of the Most High. So what you find is that Daniel chapter 7 covers the same ground as Daniel chapter 2, but it gives more information at the end of time. Why does God do this? Why does he describe prophecy in this way? Why did he need to go back and go over Babylon and meet a Persia and Greece and Rome? Why couldn't he just start with Rome and say, after Rome, there is going to be a little horn? Why couldn't he do that? Because you wouldn't know where in time you were starting this prophecy, right? You wouldn't know where to begin. He's using the principle that historicism holds to, that each new vision or a new set of descriptions is going to begin with the time of the prophet and end at the time of the end. And we can find ourselves in that stream of time. And there's each time he does that, there's more and more information about what happens at the end of time. The focus of, of symbolic end time prophecy is, surprise, the end time, right? The end time is the focus of the books of Daniel and Revelation. Let me illustrate it this way for you. If I were to ask you to take a package and go to that building, it's on the corner of Catherine Street and uh, um, Russell Street. If I were to take you and, and, and I were to say, you know, you can't use a map, you can't use a, you can't use, well, you can use a map. You can't use a, like a, an electronic device. No iPhones, no Google. Just, um, I want you to deliver the package to Russell Street and Catherine Street. How many of you could find, are you confident you could find it? Russell Street and Catherine Street. Um, no Googling, no... Where would you start looking? You think there might be a few Russell Streets in the world? Um, you'd have to get a lot of city maps and start pouring over them, right? I think we're so used to Google, you might be overly confident if you think you could find Russell Street and Catherine Street with no electronic aid. Um, we don't know enough about where that is to be able to know how to get there, do we? Um, so if I were to give you a bigger map like this, that would give you a pretty big clue, right? Um, I'm sorry, this, uh, this projector isn't very high resolution, so it's hard to see some of these things. But um, here you have, what, what continent or what part of the world are we talking about? 
It's Europe, right? So that gives you a better idea. That would limit your Russell Street and Catherine Streets. Um, perhaps if I zoomed in a little further, you would see this is actually in the United Kingdom. And um, if I gave you a little bit further clue, this is within the city of London. Well, that gives you a lot of help. And finally, if I were to show you where this map came from, it's a blow up of a certain part of the city of London, the old town, down by the, the Thames River. And now you know how to get there, right? Now, guess what? You, you find out that when you go on a journey, if you were to print off, let's say, a, um, if you were to print off a, um, what did we used to use? Uh, MapQuest. Remember some of those? Or Google Maps. And before we had iPhones, we would actually put in the address, where we're starting, where we're going. And we'd print off those directions, right? Um, you remember that it would give you a big map of, uh, of your journey, sort of an overview. But then the, the, the blown up map would be of what? Would it be of, your, of your, where you're starting or would it be of your destination? It's always your destination. Guess what? You always need more information about the destination where you're going. That's where you need it blown up because it's uncharted water. Unless you know the place, then you didn't need the map at all, right? But if you don't know where you're going, if you're coming to Houston and you're trying to find the convention center of the Hilton Americas, then you're going to need more detailed instructions about that last after you get off of Interstate 10 or after you get off of whatever uh, you know, road you're getting off of, you're going to need detailed maps of the downtown in order to get here to the hotel, right? That's, that's the way it works. So the way Bible prophecy works is it gives us that overview so that we know where the blow-up fits. Does this make sense? That's why God repeats and enlarges. Um, I, I like to illustrate a little bit like the pinch and zoom feature on our smartphones, right? We, uh, we can... When we see something we want to see in greater detail, we can zoom in. And all God is doing is saying, look, I'm going to give you the big picture so you know where you're at. But then you're allowed to zoom in at the end of time and get more details of what's happening. Every succeeding vision is giving us more details about the end of time, more details about what's going to happen as we get near the end of time. It's really sad today. I was um, the, the, day, the age in which we live, you know, I was watching a little toddler one time not too long ago, looking at a picture book, and the poor child was trying to zoom in. And um, I guess she had seen very few printed books, you know, it was all digital, and so she was trying, she could not understand why that picture would not enlarge. Um, yeah, it's the world we're living in today. But God says, look, I'm going to give you greater detail about the end of time, I'm going to help you understand it. Okay, so after the ten toes and ten kings of Daniel chapter 7, we find this little horn. And by the way, I don't want to take too much time because I'm already running out of time. But um, by the way, I, I have come to be very confident in our biblical understanding of Daniel chapter 7 and its, its identification of the little horn. Um, one time I was in the Ukraine preaching a sermon and I had two series, um, one on one side of town, one on the other side of town. So we'd preach the same sermon twice. You know, we'd take down everything, set it up on the other side of town. I had a translator who would preached a lot or translated a lot for evangelists in Ukraine. And he told me one day uh, after I ended my sermon, the first sermon, he said, you know, you preached that wrong. You preached about Daniel 7 wrong. I said, okay, what did I do wrong? He said, well, you should have asked them to identify the little horn, not told them what it represents. I said, okay. In America, that'd be dangerous. You know, we just don't have a good enough grasp of history to be able to do that. And I'm thinking, these people have a communist education. For 70 years, they've been taught by non-Christian um, non-Protestant for sure, how in the world are they going to identify and know that the 
papacy, the church of Rome, is the power being fingered in Daniel chapter 7. He said, well, just do this. After three or four characteristics, you just tell them, by now some of you are starting to figure out which, one, which power this is. By after four or five characteristics, you say, some of you already know. And by the time you get to the end characteristics, the ten characteristics, you just say, look, what, char- what power in, in history fits these ten characteristics? And I said, really? He said, yeah. So I did that. And here you have... People have been taught history from a very secular perspective, again, for generations. No Protestant influence whatsoever. You can't say that they just, well, because America used to be a Protestant nation. With one voice, when I asked them, what is the only power that can fit the description of Daniel chapter 7? One voice, the whole probably 600 people said, the papacy. I was just blown away um, at how clear this, this prophecy is. So... These are some principles that help us as safeguards in the interpretation of Bible prophecy. Historicism, the day-year principle, uh, the repeat and enlarge principle, and the understanding that the timeline runs from the time of the prophet down to the time of the end. Now, this is, what, this is the implications of this, okay? I'm just going to come out and say it. Some people, even within Adventism, have taken, for example, the seven trumpets and tried to put them into the future. There's several major problems with that. Number one, they do away with the day-year principle. They have to. Because the fifth, uh, uh, fifth and sixth trumpet include time prophecies that if you made them literal time prophecies, I mean, if you made them day-year time prophecies, they would last for hundreds of years still in the future. So they say that pro- the seven trumpets in the future, as we understand them, those are literal days. Now, is that historicism? It's not historicism. They're somehow mixing the principles of historicism and futurism. Sometimes they will say, well, I still believe that the historicist interpretation of the seven trumpets is real, is true, but I have this futurist, and they don't say that because they often don't even understand the principles of futurism or historicism, but they say, I have this future fulfillment that I believe is also true. And I'm just here to tell you that whenever you start hearing someone say, I believe this is true, but this is also true, eventually, mark my words, every single time, if they've held to those new ideas, it's always been true. They will eventually abandon the historicist interpretation of that prophecy. They will. They will move only to this futurist interpretation of prophecy. And they will begin trying to say, this is what happens in the future, and so forth and so on. Another problem with that is that there's, no timeline now from the, end of the pro, uh, from the time of the prophet until the time of the end. So now these seven trumpets, instead of beginning with the time of the prophet Revel, uh, John in Revelation, uh, the early Christian age, Rome, and, begin, and ending all the way down in the times we're living in, the seventh trumpet now is uh, sounding, um, and the uh, ending of the second coming, now we have a, uh, all those seven trumpets placed into the future. Do you understand the problems? Okay, um, we need to be careful when we begin uh, reinterpreting Bible prophecy in the using principles that are not taught in Daniel chapter two or Daniel chapter seven, the book of Daniel. For example, I mentioned to you early 
that Daniel chapter 2 has no futurist in, in, interpreters. Nobody that I know of takes Daniel 2 and says, well, you, did, you know, Daniel chapter 2, the head of gold represented Babylon. That's historicism. But in Daniel chapter 2, futurism, the head of gold represents the United Nations. I've never heard anybody do that. Daniel chapter 2 does not have dual interpretations. You can't, there's no gap in Daniel chapter 2. There's no way you can say it ended at the time of the prophet or soon after. Daniel chapter 2 is sort of like a, it's sort of like a filter that if you just say, hey, how can I teach that from the principles we learned in Daniel chapter 2 or Daniel chapter 7, we would dispense with many of the false interpretations of, of prophecy. You have no dual interpretation of the same symbol. I'm talking about the same prophecy where it means this under one paradigm, but now we reinterpret it with new principles of interpretation and we make it mean something else in the future. Why, if we don't do that to Daniel chapter 2, should we expect to be able to do that with Daniel chapter 7 or Daniel chapter 12 or the uh, seven seals or the seven churches? You understand my point? My point is Daniel teaches us how Bible prophecy works. Let's interpret it consistently and learn from the primer that we have in the Daniel. There's another very important principle that I believe is a safeguard that will help us stay away from false teachings, even within the Adventist church. Um, and by that, I'm not saying that the Adventist church teaches false understandings of prophecy, but people within the Adventist church sometimes arise and they share perspectives on prophecy that are not um, uh, true in my understanding. They certainly not, do not uh, represent what the church teaches. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, and uh, we're going to look at this principle very briefly here. Revelation chapter 10, and we're going to notice here, this is a beautiful passage. I wish we could spend a whole bunch of time on it. It's describing how Jesus himself put into motion the second advent movement. He's standing uh, on the, uh, uh, in verse 1, he's standing, a mighty angel says, and... Um, and, and he's standing on uh, one feet on the earth and one foot on the sea. He has on his, in his right hand a little book open. That description of Jesus matches what we find in Daniel chapter 10 and elsewhere, uh, Revelation chapter 1, and um, verse 3 also, his voice and so forth. It matches. We believe this is representing Jesus. And he's giving the message of Daniel, the, uh, the Millerite movement, to the world. And notice with me, um, it says, verse 4, And when seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swore by him that lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and the things that are therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he had declared to his servants the prophets. And verse 8, the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it, eat it. Eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in my mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. So the 
we believe as Seventh-day Adventists, just to be very brief, we believe that this describes the experience of the Millerites as they studied the book of Daniel, sweet in the mouth experience, but became bitter in their belly with the great disappointment, okay? And then it says, you must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now, let's be very clear here. This is Daniel chapter 10 follows Daniel chapter 9, I mean, Revelation. Revelation chapter 10 follows Revelation chapter 9, right? Revelation 9 has just talked about the fifth and sixth trumpets, and um, so this is where we're talking about. And by the way, the sixth trumpet um, came to an end. The last time period there in the trumpets came to an end there in, um, in uh, let's see, the 150, no, the time, a day, an hour, a day, a month, and a year. Um, that, that came to an end um, in August 11, 1840. Um, we, un- we don't have time to go into that, but this was Josiah Litch, the expositor, who described how the Ottoman Empire would, would cease to, to be uh, an independent power on August 11, 1840, and indeed that happened. Great controversy, Ellen White says the event exactly fulfilled the prediction, and, uh, and this gave great impetus to the message of the Millerites. Okay? So what we're talking about is right here, the beginning of the voice of the seventh angel is right in the 1840s, right? Are we clear on that? This is, this is what... This is where we are in the stream of time. And this is what it says. Um, He swore, verse 6, that there should be time no longer, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he has declared unto servants the prophets. So what does this time no longer mean? Um, We could ask ourselves a number of questions. What is the time discussed at the beginning of the seventh trumpet? Um, Is this the end of literal time? Well, we don't believe that's a very strong argument that time is going to come to an end, like the world is going to end right then, because the end of chapter 10, after eating that little book, there is a proclamation said that you must go and prophesy again before meaning nations and peoples and tongues and kings, right? So that can't be the end of literal time. What about symbolic time, a day for a year principle? Well, there's no indication of that in the text. There's no way that we can understand that from what the Bible says specifically. And in fact, um, we, we have, well, we'll move on to the 2300-day prophecy. Some people suggested that means that the end of the 2300-day prophecy. Well, the 2300-day prophecy would come to an end right about then, the time of the, of the seventh angel when it's beginning to sound. That would be the end of the 2300-day prophecy. But certainly the 2300-day prophecy is not mentioned in Daniel chapter in Revelation chapter 10, it's mentioned in Daniel chapter 8, right? That's a long ways removed. What about prophetic time? Uh, which of these options should we understand this to mean? I believe that the most, the most logical is that there's no more prophetic time after the beginning of the seventh angel that begins to sound. Time no longer. Now, I want to just share with you what Ellen White says about this because I think it's very crystal clear. This message, speaking about the message of Revelation chapter 10, This message announces the end of the prophetic periods, plural, right? So it's not just talking about the 2300-day prophecy came to an end. That would be a period, a prophetic period, right? This is talking about the end of the prophetic periods. In In another statement, she says this, This time, which the angel declares with a solemn oath, is not the end of this world's history, neither of probationary time, but of prophetic time which should precede the advent of our Lord. That is, the people, I missed a word there, the people of God will not have another message upon definite time. 
after this period of time, reaching from uh, 1842 to 1844, the end of the uh, as the be uh, beginning of the seventh angel. The, there can be no definite tracing of the prophetic time. The longest reckoning of prophetic time reaches to the autumn of 1844. Our position <clears throat> has been of one of waiting and watching with no time proclamation to intervene between the close of the prophetic periods in 1844 and the time of the Lord's coming. Are you with me on this? She is very explicit and clear in saying, look, there is no further time message. We don't need to start trying to figure out time periods. If, the time, if there is indeed no time no longer after 1844, it presents great difficulty for us to start taking prophecies that include time periods and placing them still in the future between now and the second coming. This, I believe, is a very fundamental principle that you can just listen you can listen to someone that's teaching Bible prophecy. And if they start saying, well, this is going to be 1,260 days and the time of trouble is going to happen and, and then there's going to be 30 more days before the universal Sunday law and then there's going to be 1290 and there's going to be 1335 and there's going to be all of these, even 2,300 days I've heard reinterpreted in the future. You already know you are talking to someone who does not believe in the principles of prophetic interpretation we call historicism. And there's no point in me arguing about the 1260, 1290 if we can't agree on the principles. And those principles, in my mind, are very clear. Historicism, including the principle of time no longer. This, I believe, has been placed for uh, a very clear safeguard. What should we be talking about? The angel said this. There should be time no longer, but the mystery of God should be finished. What is the mystery of God? In Colossians, we read that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It, the mystery of God is best described, summarized, I should say, by the message of righteousness by faith. The issue after 1844 that Seventh-day Adventist Bible students should be focused in is not what are the time prophecies that tell me when Jesus is going to come, but what can God teach me in my heart so that I can live closer, more closely to Him and reflect His character and live a life that will hasten His return. That's the issue after 1844, is our character. You see, if you had a calendar, that was God's calendar. This is another way of saying it. I should say this differently. Because God knows, the Father knows when, when the end is going to be. He hasn't revealed it to us. If God gave us a calendar of this world's history, the last page would end in 1844. After that, friends, we've been living off the calendar with Jesus coming imminent. That's not, that's not a definite time. When we say Jesus coming is soon, that's not definite time. If I were to say Jesus coming in five years or ten years or by the time this happens, that would be definite time. We have no message of definite time. What we believe is that Jesus is coming soon. And what is he waiting for? He's not waiting for another page of the calendar to flip by. And by the way, while I'm at it, he's not waiting for the right president to be elected in Washington or the right pope to come to the to the the, the, to the um, throne of Peter, uh, St. Peter's. He is waiting for his people. And while I have no problem with us, uh, us observing the signs of the times, we ought, all, we ought already to know that Jesus' coming is imminent and what we ought to focus on is the message of righteousness by faith and how can I become more like Jesus in this hour of earth's history? This is what Ellen White says. The Lord has shown me that the message of the third angel must go and be proclaimed to the scattered people, children of the Lord, but it must not be hung on time. 
I saw that some were getting a false excitement arising from preaching time. But the third angel's message is stronger than time can be. I saw that this message can stand on its own foundation and needs not time to strengthen it, and that it will go forth and it will go in mighty power and do its work and will be cut short in righteousness. One more thing before I let you go. I want to just illustrate for you. Some young people have said to me, but that's not fair because all of these time prophecies are in the past. I want to see something happening in my day. How can those stars have fallen in the dark day and the, the moon turned to blood? How can that already be 150 years ago or longer and, and that be a sign of the times? That seems true from our perspective, right? I mean, our short lifespan, 150 years ago, seems like a long time. I want to just give you an illustration that might help you with that. I believe we're living in the last days and I believe those are the signs of the last days. And uh, we don't need, although they may be repeated, they don't need to be repeated because this is what the reality is. If we were to look at the major events between creation and 2016, we could list some of them, the flood. We could list the, uh, the time of Abraham and the Exodus. We could look at David and the time of Jesus. We could look at the rise of Little Horn. We get all the way down here to the dark day, the time of the end. The stars fall and the judgment begins. Do you see do you, would you agree that that's the time of the end? Would you agree that we're, from just a 6,000-year perspective, not God's perspective time, but just a 6,000-year perspective, these signs are telling us the end is near, right? Um, we are living in the last days. So sometimes I think the, the need to reinterpret and to reapply Bible prophecies that have already been fulfilled comes from this, this false sense of, well, that's too long ago that those signs took place. We need prophecies now. Listen, what we need now is to turn our eyes upon Jesus. What we need now is to focus. It does no good or does little good to have a revival based on false excitement of some time prediction that Jesus is coming very soon. This is what happens, I think. People say, oh no, Jesus is coming soon. I better get ready. What, what God wants for GYC is for us to be so in love with Jesus that the response is not, oh no, Jesus is coming soon, I better get ready. But our, the, 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 the motif of our life is, I'm excited that Jesus is coming soon because I love him. There's a big difference. And I think the latter is what will really help us to be ready for the second coming. The mystery of God to be finished in your heart and mine that we might lighten the earth with the glory of God as we talked about Revelation chapter 18 in a previous seminar. I believe that Jesus is coming soon. And I want to encourage you in your study of Bible prophecy. Um, there, there are many good resources you can get um, besides a Bible concordance. Um, but don't be distracted. And I think that's a, an accurate word to use. Don't be distracted by false teachings of Bible prophecy or by false theories of prophetic interpretation that lead you down chasing rabbits down paths that God doesn't want us to go down. We have a particular focus that we're called to have uh, on our minds right now, and that is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the mystery of God being finished. Um, I'll stay for a few minutes if you have questions, but let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we conclude. Father in heaven, we just thank you that you've given to us your word, your prophetic word. We pray that we might understand the principles by which we interpret prophecy, that we might be safeguarded as we live in these last days. You have told us that there will be every wind of doctrine, that in fact there will be false teachers arise so that if possible they'll deceive even the very elect. And we just pray that we might not be deceived. Help us to be strong in understanding of Bible prophecy. We are a prophetic movement. We're a prophetic people. Help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus. 
let, uh, let his love and his truth and his righteousness and the message of righteousness by faith be the great power that attends the message of the fourth angel. And he might come soon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference when all has been heard in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.